0: To Acts chapter 26 in chapter 25 verses 1 through 6 we saw where Festus arrived at Caesarea after Felix had been returned to Rome. He quickly takes a visit up to Jerusalem and was challenged by the Priests and elders in Jerusalem there, they wanted Paul to be brought up on charges. Festus insisted if they're going to bring charges, they must come to Caesarea to make the formal complaint. 7 through 9, Festus returned to Caesarea, and the Jews do vet that very thing. They come and file a complaint against Paul. 10 through 12, Paul appeals to Caesar Verses 13 through 22, we see the arrival of Agrippa and Bernice. Festus describes this case to them, knowing how well they are closely associated and related to the Jewish population, hoping to find some wisdom about what to do. In verses 23 through 27 of Acts 25, Agrippa and Bernice are, are, are officially welcomed. Much pomp and circumstance as they come into the court. And Agrippa ap- agrees to hear Paul's statement. And Festus is very glad because he does not wish to send Paul to the courts of Caesar without a written complaint, a written formal note. In verse 26, or chapter 26, verse 1 of Acts, So Agrippa said to Paul, Now, Paul is at the tribunal court, and he's standing not only before Festus, but before Herod Agrippa. But Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on the trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it that though why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise up and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray briefly before we move any further. Lord, we ask for your help and for your guidance. Prick our hearts with your spirit. Illumine our minds with its light. And help us us to see where we err, where we stray, in order that we may faithfully follow you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I keep, keep keep kicking around words every time I try and decide on sermon titles. This morning in your bulletin is man's pride versus God's power. I almost and I may refer to it now and again during this morning's message man's opinion versus God's truth. We all know that spiritual hazard that pride presents. Everyone, one, every one of us wants to be seen as a humble person. Proud people are rude and obnoxious and self-centered. Proverbs 16, 18, very familiar passage, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So we know how danger, dangerous pride is spiritually. We also know how awkward it can be socially but we want to look at the spiritual danger this morning please remember that it was through pride that the devil became the devil pride leads to every, every kind of sin it is a complete anti-God state of mind if you are proud you cannot come before God with any success, with any grace, with any patience or mercy from him. Now, don't be confused. I'm not talking about self-respect. There is a kind of personal satisfaction that comes with a discipline of proper habits and attitudes. I remember my dad, when I was growing up, you know children are, they don't like taking baths, but then when they become teenagers, you have to remind them it's time to take, and my dad fussing at me, show a little self-pride. I'm not talking about that kind of pride that is bad, but the kind of pride that is self-respect, personal satisfaction that comes with a discipline and proper habits and attitudes. I'm not talking about that this morning. We're talking about something that is destructive and corrosive to the soul. Sometimes it's acceptable to be proud of yourself when you've done well, when you've accomplished things that you had on your list to do, or when you've gained knowledge, education, or skill, or training. There's nothing wrong with that. But as we look further into this morning's lesson, we're going to look at two examples of destructive pride, the kind of pride that condemns many people, the kind of pride that draws many people away from the Lord and keeps them away from the Lord. One example is a disciplined, capable leader. The other is a self-serving narcissist with a hardened soul. One is not so bad. In fact, he's kind of easy to get along with. He seemed to be a reasonable man. He seemed to be a patient man, but he is still proud. The other one is the kind of person most people want to avoid. The book of Acts is traditionally considered kind of an inspirational book for evangelism kind of a motivational book for evangelism. I mean, there's a lot of people getting saved. There's a lot of preaching. There's a lot of teaching. There are a lot of churches being planted and growing in the book of Acts. It's an exciting book. And in Paul's journeys, he had already preached and witnessed to hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And I'm sure that many of whom were city elders and councilmen and statesmen. Indeed, he had already spent much time, several opportunities, with the previous governor, Felix, sharing the gospel with him. And he had become acquainted with Governor Festus, and in his morning's, in this, this morning's account, we read where Paul had the opportunity to speak to Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II. Well, what an opportunity for the presentation of the gospel. wouldn't it be a wonderful opportunity if we could present the gospel before a governor or even a president? Do you think that they might be converted if they did not already believe? Or do you think they might be too proud? Festus was a Roman governor who held the title and was one of these men we want to talk about and the other man held the title of king of Judea. So we're looking at a governor and one who considered himself a king. We have no record that Festus ever converted. I'm not saying he didn't. Our record of his life ends with this account. We have no record that Agrippa ever believed. We have no record that the previous governor, Felix, received Christ. It makes us ask the question, had Paul failed? Had the gospel failed? Had the power of God's truth failed? I mean, what's more powerful, man's pride or God's power? If God's power, if the power of God's word is so great, why don't more people convert? I've often thought that, wondered that. It's so easy to understand the gospel. Why don't people just receive Christ as their savior? It all boils down to the pride. I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't want to commit to it. I know it's going to cost too much. I'm not ready. I've heard all of these excuses when I've shared the gospel before. The worst sin, the most dangerous sin, the root of all sin is pride itself. And these two examples we're looking at this morning demonstrate destructive pride, the kind of pride that destroys or condemns many the disciplined leader Festus, the other the self-serving pervert with a hardened soul, Agrippa the second. When we consider Festus, we might not think that he's. We might not think he's so bad. He's not an unreasonable man, though he is a qualified and accomplished politician. He is a capable leader. In our account, he seems he appears to be reasonable, but remember that he is a Roman. And since he is a Roman, we know that he is an idol- idolater. And Romans believed in many gods. Romans also believed it's kind of its oversimplification but they kind of had the idea that Mike might makes right." This was the conquering nation. They ruled in victory. So this kind of shored up Festus's pride a little bit. I am successful, I am qualified, I'm appointed by Caesar himself. I have the authority. Respect me. I have wealth, I have everything I need. I am comfortable I am safe probably relied heavily on his own qualifications he had a great deal of confidence which translated into a great deal of pride But please notice in our text he did not have enough courage to follow through with the right decision I read in one commentary this statement and a I can see that it's true. In a way, Festus was to Paul what Pontius Pilate was to Jesus. He valued peace with the Jews more than justice. And despite determining his prisoner was innocent, he sent him to judgment anyway. Festus knew Paul was innocent, but he was afraid of what the Jews would do if he set him free Paul was presenting his case. he was focusing more on a conversation or presenting it to to Agrippa, and Festus was there overhearing it and in verse twenty three of acts twenty six he gets to the point the high point of his message, Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you crazy. He really said you're out of your mind twice, but that's what he meant. Why would he say that? this Roman politician, this Roman governor, this victor saw Christ as a condemned criminal. He saw him as a loser. It made no sense to him. He could not understand it. It just kind of blew his mind. It kind of reminds us of the words Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of this world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. There is so much rich depth in the wisdom of those words. We can see Christ there Christ was willing to lose all so that he might bring us to his father it doesn't make sense why wasn't Festus convinced because he was full of pride He was educated, he was accomplished, he was respected, he had the authority of Rome behind him. I'm a successful winner, why should I follow a loser? Many so-called preachers tell their congregations that God wants them to be successful. God wants them to be winners. The fact of the matter is that God wants you to be obedient to his word more than he wants you to be successful. There are people living on the street. There are people who are homeless. There are people who live in poverty, who have more faith in their Lord and Savior than some of the wealthiest people in this world. God truly wants you to be obedient to his word more than he wants you blessed with material things or blessed with knowledge or blessed with skill. Be faithful to him. Be humble before him. You may have been blessed with success. You may have been blessed with knowledge. You may have been blessed with an ability. And for God to ask you to forsake all of it, might seem foolish to you. Quite frankly, if that's a struggle, your pride is in the way, and it shouldn't be. There are many Herod, There are several Herod Agrippas mentioned in Scripture. The Herodian dynasty in the history of the early church is prominent. Who was Herod Agrippa II? Well, let me just remind you a bit of his family tree. Herod the Great ruled Judea when Jesus was born. This was the one who became so jealous of the idea that another king would be born. But he asked the wise men, go and find him, and then tell me where he is, so that I may worship him. He was lying. He sent soldiers to kill all the firstborn under two years old in a village. In order that he might stop this newborn king. That was Herod Agrippa's great-great-grandfather. Herod Antipas ruled during the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. Herod Antipas was the one who gave the order to have John beheaded. And he was the one who also sat in judgment during Christ's trials. Herod Agrippa I, another son of Herod the Great, ruled a few years during the early church Herod Agrippa I was the one who executed James by the, by the sword. And this is the one who was struck dead by the infestation of worms. It's, that accounts is recorded in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa II was Herod Agrippa I's son. He was 17 years old when his father died. Emperor Claudius kept him in Rome a few more years and then gave him the title of king and the responsibility to oversee Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. Acts tells us that Herod Agrippa II came to Caesarea with Bernice. Bernice was not his wife. She was his sister. And historians suggest repeatedly that there was an incestuous relationship going on there. She had been married to her uncle, Herod Polio of Chalcis. After his death, she left to live with her brother. So this is the Herod Agrippa II. This is the one who was self-centered, self-absorbed, a narcissist, an adulterer. May I say the word pervert. That's a word that would get you canceled these days. In verse 25 through 28 Paul is speaking, responding to what Festus had said but he's speaking to both Festus and Agrippa. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows these th- about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? This is a pretty close, accurate translation in verse 28. Those of you who are familiar with the old King James, that read, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Not quite right. Herod Agrippa was nowhere being saved, nowhere near being saved. Looking at the text in the original language, he is saying, "Paul, do you really think you can make me a Christian in such a short time?" He's not believing. It. He's not buying it. He's so full of pride, he's not ready to repent. Why wasn't the power of the gospel able to pierce their hearts? Why wasn't it able to convince Festus or Agrippa? Two examples of destructive pride, and the same kind of pride condemns many. One a very disciplined, capable leader, the other a self serving narcissist and hardened soul. And why weren't they saved? Do you remember the story of Israel in Egypt? Pharaoh was a first-hand witness to the power of God. He had heard the warning from Moses, and he had seen the ten plagues upon his nation. He had seen the suffering. He had smelled the stench from the river that turned to blood and from the frogs that had come up on the ground to die and the flies that swarmed everywhere. He had seen the power of God, and yet the Bible says, He refused to believe. In fact God said for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God is sovereign. God does whatsoever he pleases. And if he chooses someone for destruction, they're not going to believe. And he does choose some for destruction in order that we might see that he is serious about sin. And we don't like that very much. We don't like to think about that at all. God loves everybody We have forgotten, we have totally washed all mention or understanding of faithfulness out of the idea of love. We want love to be warm and fuzzy and cozy and comfortable. But I don't care where you go or what kind of relationship, love requires faithfulness. If you're a father of children, if you're a mother of children, love for them requires faithfulness. If you're a husband or a wife, love requires faithfulness or it is not love. And if God says that he loves you, he's going to be faithful to you if we are to love him we must be faithful to his word. And there are too many people who are banking hope in a fuzzy love from God without any reciprocity. I am so proud. They won't say this. I am so proud I don't have to do anything to say that I am a Christian. It requires nothing from me. He loves me I saw one preacher, one of the faith healer, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers preaching a message, just give yourself a hug. It's incomprehensible what some preachers will say these days. the life of pharaoh god's glory is revealed in his righteous judgment upon a nation that would not believe and in god's glory is also revealed in judgment upon qualified reasonable capable men who are so proud they don't think they need salvation like festus and god's glory is also revealed in a righteous judgment upon people who are so full of sin they refuse to receive Christ as Savior. There's something in this lesson that we must see. The Bible admonishes us to fear the Lord. Are you proud? Are you proud? Be very afraid. Repent of that pride. In his providence, God left the world's most powerful rulers in darkness in order that we might see that he is serious about the sinful heart of man. The Lord himself told his disciples, whoever exalts himself will be humble." And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord Himself says, You want to come to my Father's throne with your chest out full of pride and arrogance? He will not tolerate it. You will be humbled. But if you come before Him humble, unworthy, knowing you're a sinner, he will pour out upon you mercy and grace and favor. Both James and Peter tell us God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. Man's pride versus God's power, or man's opinion versus God's truth. Very often I hear, and I may have even said it in conversation sometimes, but very often I hear it from people, and I, I'm sure they really mean it. In my humble opinion, and they finish whatever they're saying, that's a deliberate deception. There's nothing humble about it. Anytime someone says, in my humble opinion, you are declaring proudly, look you're wrong, I'm right. They're just doing it in a polite way. It's one thing when we are debating politics. It's quite another thing when we are talking about the truths of Scripture. And that's where we must be very careful. I've heard... I've heard here and in other churches, well, that's just the preacher's opinion. I don't have to believe that. I don't have to agree with God's word. Be very careful. Your pride is showing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own to your own opinion because any time you differ with god's word it's opinion you've made a judgment that he doesn't really mean it that your word or your thoughts or your understanding is more important your pride is showing we see a great many churches and congregations that lean on man's understanding. There are a lot of preachers who want to appeal to men's opinion and men's favor and men's approval. There's a Southern Baptist church in Florida. This is usual, the usual kind of thing for their worship service. I don't know if some of you are familiar. Some I know. Some of you young people are. There's a rap group called Run DMC. They recorded a uh, record years ago called "Walk This Way," and this Southern Baptist church in Florida began their worship service performing that on their platform as a worship service. And another Sunday morning they had the place set up like a pirate ship and Captain Jack Sparrow was swinging from one side of the place to the other for a worship service. Why in the world are churches filling up auditoriums with stuff like this? Because man's opinion and man's favor and man's approval Is easier to get than repentance. They want you to feel good. They want to encourage you. They want to motivate you. And I don't think it's so far away from us. I talked about in Florida. You go out here, go out to the highway down here and start heading towards Spring Lake. Just before you get to the first traffic light, you will see. You look up on the right, and there is this sign up on there advertising another church nearby that says, We won't blow sunshine up here. <laughs> and I didn't see it the first time. I was driving Teresa somewhere, and she said, Dave, did you see that? I said, See what? And she told me, uh, my mouth dropped open. And on the way back, we saw it on the other side, coming back up before we got to the same light. There was a time when that kind of language from a church would be considered crass and unacceptable. But local church is using it to draw people in. People don't want to be corrected. They want to be comforted. people don't want to be convicted. They want to be encouraged. And if they don't get it from the pastor, in other words, if the pastor preaches about sin and about the truth of Scripture, and if the pastor challenges them to repent, they usually go somewhere else. I can find comfort somewhere else. William gurnall over nearly 300 years ago, Almost 400 years ago. I don't like doing math in my head. Cowards never won heaven. Do not claim that you are begotten of God and have his royal blood running in your veins unless you can prove your lineage by his heroic spirit. To dare to be holy in spite of men or devils. Does his royal blood spiritually speaking flow in your veins? Are you heroic to stand for the truth of God? It was through pride that the devil came became the devil. Pride leads to every other sin. Be courageous enough to confront your sin, to do battle within, to repent. and give glory to God with your life in humility. I saw something the other day was very convicting and very encouraging and very helpful. The church is not a cruise ship where a handful of people serve everyone else while they are relaxing. No the church is a battleship where it's all hands on deck and everyone serves the mission there's a true picture of the church of what the church should be and in a very real way we follow we follow the lord's example paul was preaching the death and resurrection of the lord jesus christ before festus and agrippa and it was just so far into their understanding, they would not receive it. But it was a picture of how, well, let me be very careful with the language. God was willing to lose all. He gave all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ was willing to stand as a criminal in order that you could be free. He was willing to lose so that you might win grace. C.S. Lewis describes it this way in his book, The Four Loves. And with this, we'll close. God who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites and causes us to be that causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him here in his love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. It's convicting that C. S. Lewis would call us. Parasites, but we do need him. We nourish on his word. We nourish on his truth. We are nourished by his light. And it's all because his son humbled himself and died in your place. And he asked us to humble ourselves to come to him, to receive his grace, to be washed in his mercy. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your truth and power and word. And we pray this day that you might help us see in Christ our salvation. Bless us, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.